This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. All right, well, if you have your Bibles with you, please open to the very first book of the Bible. Let's just open the very first page, probably, Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 1. For the benefit of anyone who might be new, typically as a church what we do is we go through one book of the Bible kind of systematically, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. However, we will occasionally have a series where we look at uh, various topics that the Bible addresses. And so it's not a series that's grounded in one book, but it's a series that will take place in different parts of the Bible. And that's the kind of series that we're in right now. And we're calling this series Untwisting the Truth. We started this series by talking about how we can know what is true, which is by knowing God and what his word says is true. We talked about how we can know what is true and how we can live with grace as we stand on what is true. What does it look like to be a church that is full of both grace and truth? How do we untwist that and live that out faithfully in our lives? That was our first sermon. And then last week we looked at untwisting the truth about sex and our sexuality. This morning we're going to be talking about untwisting the truth about gender. About gender. Gender has become a very controversial subject here in America, and really not just America, but in all parts of the world. And so on the one hand, in Sweden, gender reassignment therapy has gone up 1,500% in the past 20 years. But on the other hand, some recent questions have emerged as a study was published that showed it followed every person in Sweden who had undergone gender reassignment therapy from 1973 to 2003. So it was a longitudinal study, the most controlled study there's been up to date. And this is what that study concluded. Persons with transsexualism after sex reassignment have considerably higher risk for mortality, suicidal behavior, and psychiatric morbidity than the general population. So Sweden's honestly not really sure what to do. Uh, There's conflict. There's a lot of controversy and confusion as this report has come out. There's a lot of controversy going on in our city right now. I'm not sure if you're following the story of Leah Thomas, the uh, Penn swimmer. Leah was a so-so male swimmer uh, who a year ago transitioned to be a swim as a female, and Leah is now crushing the competition, has gone from about ranked 500 in the nation to number one in the entire nation, uh, breaking all kinds of records. And one of this person's female teammates recently spoke out against allowing Leah to swim as a female. And so this is what this female te- teammate said. There are monumental physical advantages that biological males develop through puberty. And it's not something that a year of hormone treatments can suppress, because they still have all the muscle mass that they had from the last 20 years. By allowing him to swim as a female, the MCAA is proving, once again, that they don't actually care about their women athletes. As you can imagine, that comment set off a firestorm. Some people jumping in to defend Leah and calling these teammates transphobic bigots, <laughs> and others certainly upset that, that Leah is being allowed to swim a, as a female. And it, it, is just, it is just a hot mess right now. It's a controversial topic in the LGBT community itself. There's not a monolithic view on this. There are different opinions even within that own community. Gender is not agreed upon often. And so Fred Sargent, who organized the first gay pride march in, in, in the U.S., this is what he came out and said, and he got a lot of heat for it. Homosexuality is same-sex attraction. Biological sex is real. Sex is binary, not a spectrum. And so people started calling him a transphobic bigot for those types of comments. And so this is a hot mess. There are are different opinions on side of all of this issue. But in the middle of this, we can't lose sight of this, friends, that this is not just an issue. This conversation represents real people who are often really hurt. Author Andrea Long Chu, who is someone who went through gender reassignment surgery from male 
through female. This is what Andrea writes. Until the day I die, my body will regard the vagina as a womb. This is what I want, but there's no guarantee it will make me happier. In fact, I don't expect it to. Dysphoria, which dysphoria is feeling confused about your gender, dysphoria feels like being unable to get warm, no matter how many layers you put on. It feels like hunger without appetite. It feels like grieving. It feels like having nothing to grieve. Friends, I hope we hear that person's pain and internal angst. And into all this confusion and pain and hostile conversations back and forth, our God of love does not want to leave us in a hot mess. But He speaks clearly about the truth because He cares about the good of who we are. And so last week we saw in Matthew chapter 19 that Jesus went back to creation God's original design when he was asked questions about sexuality and marriage and uh, the passages that he went to, if we were paying attention to them, they not only spoke about marriage, they actually made some pretty clear statements about gender. And so we're going to look at those passages again this morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and we're going to jump into chapter 2, verses 7, and then 18 through 24, talking about when God creates Adam and Eve. Starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now over to chapter 2, where we're given more details about how God did this. We read about the creation of man in verse 7 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Go over to verse 18 as we see about the creation of woman. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper found fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up with its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from a man, he made into a woman and brought her to man. Then the man said, this at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Praise God for his holy word. You bow with me now for a word of prayer that he would bless the preaching of it. God, I pray that as we talk yet again about things that are very personal and very sensitive, I pray that you'd minister to us with the clarity that your love brings. I pray that you would speak to, to our hearts in all the various ways that we need to hear you today. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, which inspired these words to be written, that that same Spirit would now illuminate these words to our hearts. That we might see your good for us. And in doing so, our souls might be found joyful in you. We pray this for the joy of our hearts and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are going to spend half our time this morning looking at two things from these texts, and then we're going to spend the other half talking about how we can actually apply this together as a church. And so we're going to see two things. The first is this. We have been made in God's image. That jumps off the page right away. In verse 27 of chapter 1, we see that God makes man in his own image. Now there are two Hebrew words that are being translated here as man. Please excuse me, my pronunciation, my Hebrew isn't great, but, but there is ha-adam, which is humanity, and there is ish, which means male. And so what this passage is saying is that God created ha-adam, that's humanity or mankind, in his own image. And then he made ish, male, and isha, 
female he created them. And so God is being very, very clear that everyone who has been made is someone who has been made in the image of God. To bear one's image is the idea of being a representation of that person. So in ancient times, if a king or queen needed to negotiate something in another land, but did not want to go themselves, they would commission someone to go on their behalf as their image bearer. And that image bearer would go and speak and act and represent that king or queen to that place they had been sent. And so theologian Mark Cortez says it this way, humanity being made in the image of God is a declaration that God intended to create human persons to be the physical means through which he would manifest his own divine presence in the world. Friends, there is nothing more significant that could be said about humanity than that we are image bearers of God. His image is greater than whatever kind of image we might try to cultivate for ourselves. In this selfie age, which is all about image cultivation and what I do and and how I can present myself to get the most likes possible on social media, it's like, what can we do to rival being made in God's image and representing Him? Like, fly to Mars and take a selfie. Look at me, stepping where no person has stepped before. And God's like, I'm glad you finally showed up to my planet. I'm not saying that human pursuits don't matter, but the Christian ethic is that we don't have to do anything to prove that we have worth. No, no, we are to live ambitious life, lives, doing amazing, creative things, not to prove our worth, but because we already have worth as image bearers of God. You see, Genesis 1 and 2 are giving us a foundation for viewing ourselves and viewing everyone we encounter with dignity and respect as those who have been made in God's likeness and bear his very image. But how do we bear God's image? Is this this something that is physical or is this just referring to something that is spiritual? One of the tenets of the transgender movement is that there's a distinction between our material being, our bodies, so things like penises and vaginas, there, there, is, there is a distinction between that and our conscious being or our, our sense of self. Some, some would even say our soul. It's described sometimes as two stories of one house. And so on the base floor, there is the material stuff, our biology. And, and then on the top floor, there's the immaterial stuff, which is our consciousness or our sense of self, our, our psychology, our spirit, if you will. And so the thinking goes, you could have the body of a male be that on the the first floor, but on the top floor, consciously or spiritually, you could actually be a different gender. And priority is meant to be given to the top floor over the bottom floor. Priority is given to the immaterial over the material, the spirit over the body, psychology over biology. And this thinking has become increasingly mainstream. For example, our own Philadelphia school district defines gender identity in this way. Gender identity is a person's deeply held sense or psychological knowledge of their own gender, regardless of the sex they were assigned at birth. Individuals determine their own gender identity, and gender identity may change over time. Notice a couple key words in this definition. They say that they're they're, they're differentiating gender from that which is sex assigned at birth. So what is sex assigned at birth? What does that mean? Well, they define that as well. Sex assigned at birth is the classification, either male or female, that a doctor assigns to an individual upon birth. This differs from biological sex, which encompasses sex traits both external and internal, including genitals, hormones, chromosomes, internal reproductive organs, etc., So what they're saying is that sex assigned at birth is whatever the doctor decides to mark on the birth certificate, which according to this definition could actually differ from someone's biological sex. I'm not sure what they think the doctors are doing, just like flipping coins. Ah, today's, I'm not sure what they're doing. But but, but I want to be fair. Most transgender activists actually don't go as far as what the Philadelphia School District is doing here. 
they, they acknowledge that doctors probably know how to identify someone's biology. Um, but, but, what, but what they're saying in, in the rest of this definition, it's actually fairly common. There's a distinction between biological sex, bottom floor, and gender identity. The psychology itself, the top floor. But again, psychology being emphasized over biology. And, and really, friends, as we see this mainstream idea, the idea is actually not all that new. This is a, an idea that's been around for a while. Going all the way back to Plato, the Greek philosopher. He, he regularly talked about the duality of our person. There was the material world and the immaterial, or in his other words, the, the ideal world. And so, for example, he used this analogy where he says the soul in the body is like the driver of a chariot trying to control an unruly horse. And so, again, you see a distinction between soul and body. And sometimes this distinction can be in conflict, he's saying. And so, you know, one could be driving the chariot, that's, that's the soul, which is more important, like they're the ones who are in control, but, but they have an unruly horse, and that's the body. They're just trying to rest, you know. And, and there was this ancient idea in, in, Roman, um, in Roman times of Gnosticism. Gnosis means knowledge, where the mind was greater than material. And the thought was true freedom would come when we actually could shed the body. Or fast forward and you have Rene Descartes who famously said what? I think, therefore I am. My mind is what makes me, me. He talks about how the body is like a machine and our soul is like a ghost that possesses it. And so this idea of a duality of nature is something that, that's been around for a long time. And in on the one hand, we see it present here in our text. We see that God breathed into Adam to create him. And the word breath there is the same word for spirit. And so part of being in God's image is that we are spiritual beings. We do have souls. This is what distinguishes us from, from animals. This is why as Adam looked at all the animals and named all the animals, he, he did not see anyone who was like him who also had a spirit. I love animals, but I'm sorry for all the pet lovers. Your pets will probably not be with you in heaven. Um, I just crushed everyone's hearts. So i got to move on. Um, we need to realize God, God has created us uniquely as, as beings who have souls, but God did not make us in his image as disembodied souls. No, what did God do? God breathed into the dust of the earth. Material stuff. How, how God created woman. He took a rib from man. Material stuff, and he made a woman. Now, did God need to create this way? Not at all. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, you'll see God, God makes nothing else this way. He just speaks, and it comes into existence. But there's an emphasis that is being brought that, that when man and woman are created, they're created from material stuff. They're created as material, physical beings. And this physical nature of our personhood is made very clear as we see God's first command to male and females to do what? It's to go be fruitful and multiply. Go have sex. <laughs> That's a biological function that immediately implies that we are embodied people. And so when God says that he, is, that he made male and female in his image, he, he's not in any way drawing a distinction of an identity that we have from, from our biology that differs from our psychology. He's talking about souls as embodied persons. And in our embodied persons, God literally wrote male or female into our genetic code with either an XY or an XX chromosome. Cardiologist Paula Johnson, who in 2016 actually became the first black female president of Wesley Medical College, she, 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 she writes this, every cell has a sex. And what that means is that men and women are different down to the cellular and molecular level. It means that we're different across all our organs, from our brains to our hearts, our lungs, our joints. And the reason she was saying that is she was saying that the way that doctors treat people need to be different. And actually the kind of testing and dosing and, and all these things, they need to be different because we are different. And we just need to medically recognize that. And, and so what we see in this is that, friends, what we're seeing here, here in, in Genesis chapter 1, we're seeing that, 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 that doctors... Don't assign sex at birth. 
No, what they do is they recognize the sex that God assigned to us at conception. Now, at this point, some people want to throw a flag and say, well, what about all those who are intersex? Right? People who are born with chromosomes, extra chromosomes, that make their biology ambiguous. Amnesty International famously has quoted a statistic that 1.7 people are born intersex, and they say it's the same amount of people that are born with red hair. But while that stat actually makes for a nice tweet, it's been shown to be false. It's been, it's been disproven. They're, they're wrong by a lot. You can go ahead and Google it and fact check it. Um, but it's actually the number's like 0.3%. And so we're talking the difference of like millions and millions and millions of people. But regardless of how prevalent this is, at the real heart of this, this conversation, as scholar Nancy Percy points out in her excellent book, Love Thy Body, she writes, the existence of intersex persons is often used to disrupt the male-female binary. That claim is self-contradictory. Intersex is a biological condition, while transgender activists insist that biology is irrelevant to gender identity. She, what she's saying is you, you, you can't say, on the one hand, biology doesn't matter, and on the other hand, bring up a biology function to talk about how biology doesn't matter. It, it's a self-contradictory statement. They're saying transgender activists, instead of bringing up intersex people to make their point, really have nothing to say about intersex people at all because it's a biological condition which transgender activists won't, won't recognize in the same way. They really should have nothing to say about that. But as Christians, we do have something to say. As Christians, instead of using intersex people as a prop to make some kind of point, the Christian call is to compassion and care, to love and support, for anyone in any way that we can because we believe that everyone has been made in the image of God. And we have a framework for why our bodies don't always function as God originally intended them to do. As Christians, we believe that we are not a random process of evolution where the weak do need to give way to the strong, where if you can't reproduce yourself physically, you should just eventually cease to be. No, the Christian mindset is, no, 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 that's not true at all. Everyone's made in the image of God, and the reason that we don't always function as we should is not because we're a mistake of evolutionary processes, but because sin has pervaded this world. And things are not as God originally intended them to be. And so I have a condition called Crohn's disease. Crohn's disease was not part of God's original good creation. And so there are ways that my body doesn't image God as it was originally intended to do because my body has been affected by the fall. But that doesn't make me any less a person. You know what it does? It actually validates my pain. Because it says that my condition is not an evolutionary mistake and people like me just need to be weeded out over time. No, it says this is part of living in a curse-filled world. And you know what God does when he sees the curse of our sin? We read in Scripture that he grieves over it. And so you know what validates my pain? The fact that God feels my pain with. And so to the person who is intersex, who's experiencing all the pain that could come from that challenging condition, the Christian message is one of affirmation. You are an image bearer of God. And it is one of sympathy that we want to join God in grieving with how life is hard for you. And also it's a message of hope. Because even in our brokenness, the Christian message is that the God of love and redemption promises to make all things new. And that includes the renewal of our bodies. And that takes us really to the second thing that we need to see in this text. Why is God going to renew our bodies? We're not just going to be disembodied souls floating in heaven. Why does 1 Corinthians 15 say that we're actually going to be given bodies that will endure forever? Why? Because point number two, our bodies are sacred. Our bodies are sacred. We're made in God's image, both 
soul and body in God's image, and our bodies are sacred. When we read that God took a rib from the man to make a woman, the word that's used for rib there is actually a word that, that's translated as sacred architecture. This is the only place in the Bible where it's used to describe a rib. In every other place in the Bible, it's used to describe something that is holy, either the side of the Ark of the Covenant or the side of God's holy temple. And so what God is showing us here right at the outset is that our bodies are sacred. They're holy unto our Lord. And this is because our bodies, not just our souls, but our bodies have been given to us by God to live for the glory of God. Romans 12, 1 tells us to do what? I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Notice how this passage speaks about our spirituality. We are to give God spiritual worship. That means he is to be worshipped by our souls, held in highest esteem and valued within our spirits. But how do we give God this spiritual worship? By presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. A sacrifice is something that has been set aside for a holy purpose. And so we see that our bodies are holy and sacred because they are meant to be set aside for obedience to God. And so as we obey God physically with our bodies, what we're doing is we are worshiping Him spiritually in our souls. And so this is why 1 Corinthians 6.20 commands us to glorify God in your body. I think this is one of the things that the Me Too movement so helpfully drew our attention to. One of the things that those brave people were saying was that if you assault me physically... You are degrading me and touching something that is sacred. To which a Bible-believing Christian should say, yes and amen. These things are serious and significant. Because it's not just like stubbing your toe. No, there is, there is a unique bond between our physical nature and our soul nature. And nothing shows the sacredness of our bodies more clearly than the fact that Jesus, God's holy son, part of the Trinity, came and took on human flesh. I mean, at the heart of Christianity is the truth that God entered into humanity. The creator became created so that he could rescue his creation Jesus came to take on the curse of sin that is plaguing this world. He came to take it on and overcome it. Jesus came to die so that he could reverse sin's effects of death and decay. And to do this, he took on what? A human body. No greater compliment has ever been made to human flesh than the fact that God became flesh. He came and took on a human body so that as a human he could take on God's judgment for the sins that humans commit. And then to show that he is also divine, he rose from the grave after having been killed. To show that his death is enough to pay the judgment of death for anyone who put their faith in him. And so Jesus was raised to life. But if you're familiar with those accounts, he was not just raised to life spiritually. He was raised to life physically. He told his disciples, come and touch me. He ate and he drank with them to show them that he was not just a ghost, not just some wandering soul. But Jesus rose from the grave, both spiritually and physically, and he still exists, still to this day, right now, as fully God and fully embodied man. Friends, you need to know there's a human in heaven right now, at God's right hand. And he is our hope that we as humans are going to also be able to go and be with God. Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us with the wounds he bore on the cross in our place. The wounds that he still bears in his body. His body still has those scars as eternal proof of our salvation. He bears in his body 
the receipts of our redemption. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that like Jesus, when we die, yes, this earthly body will pass away, but we will not become disembodied souls. No, we're going to be giving new bodies of immortality. Because God does not discard who we are. God redeems who we are. And so in heaven, we will continue to exist either as male or female because we will be part of the redeemed glory of the new creation. So this is the truth about our bodies. We have been made in God's image, both body and soul, and our bodies are sacred. And in Christ and His new creation, they are eternal. So let's think through some applications of this. How, how can we live with grace as we stand on the truth of what God says about our gender? You know, Six things, very briefly, hopefully they give you some helpful categories. I'll, I'll flesh these out in a podcast, actually probably later this week. We have a podcast coming out tomorrow that addresses some things that from, from last week's sermon, and so uh, we'll try to get, get one out this week to you as well. But here's, here's just six things, very briefly. Number one, we need to think biblically. How do we engage this? We need to think biblically. Often when I have conversations with people who are experiencing gender confusion, I'm just so grateful that they would, would open up to me about those things. But what they express is how their confusion, it, it comes from the reality that they don't exhibit certain behaviors or have certain feelings. So I've had the conversation of, man, I'm just not that, from a woman, I'm just not that nurturing of a person. Does that mean that I'm not really a woman? Or, or I had a friend who, who, who's, who's a guy who's really short, and after a party, he offered to drive some girls home to make sure they got back safely, and they looked at him like, I'm pretty sure we're bigger than you, and you're not going to do much to protect us. And they were joking with him, but he was actually deeply hurt. What kind of man am I that's not strong like this? So often when we talk about male and female, what, what we're doing is we're actually not thinking biblically, but we're thinking in terms of cultural stereotypes. So for example, I'm wearing a pink shirt today. And I actually did this on purpose to set up this moment. I actually love the color pink. Um, and people are like, well, that's a girl color. And I want to ask, where in the Bible does it say that pink is a girl color? This is actually a quote from 1918. It's the uh, 1918 edition of the Women's Home Journal. Listen, pink, being a more decided and stronger color, is more suitable for the boy. Amen. While blue, which is more delicate and dainty, is prettier for the girl. And so a hundred years ago, if you're having a gender reveal party, it's going to be pink, it's a boy. Blue, it's a girl. Colors aren't, by their nature, tied to gender, but they're cultural stereotypes that change over time. My wife is better at home repairs than I am. Don't judge me. I can feel some people judging me. Um, but I have zero patience. I get frustrated very easily by things, but she just, she's just fine to sit there, look at the YouTube tutorial, and like figure it out. And so am I less of a man for not wanting to be on the point for those home projects? Don't answer that question. But in our culture, we have all these kind of stereotypes of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. But friends, as Christians, we're not called to think culturally. We're called to think biblically. Proverbs 31 describes a woman who glorifies God. And in that description, there's talk of her love for God, her care for needy people, her taking care of her household. But it also says her arms are strong. Because you know what? Back in those days, taking care of your household meant you were working on a farm. Like, she's not knitting at home. Not that there's anything wrong with anyone who likes to knit. Enjoy that. But, but hers was hard, laborious work. This woman is muscular from how hard she had to work. We're told that she buys and sells field, sometimes negotiating with merchants from afar. She is an international business whiz with an entrepreneurial spirit. We're thinking about King David. He did things in the Bible that men are supposed to do, like protect others, but he also wrote poetry. And sometimes his emotions would so overcome him that many of his poems that you read in the Psalms talk about how he is crying. The, the idea that manning up and hide, is hiding your emotions and acting like nothing is going on, friends, that's not biblical. 
Jesus wept. And so when we're talking about gender, we need to think biblically, not culturally. And if we start doing that, we'll find that the Bible offers a lot more freedom about what it means to be a man or a woman than our culture does. In prep for this sermon, I came across an account of a man named Jonah Mix. For, for years, he was immersed in the transgender movement and queer theory. And this is what he said. It was in queer circles that I first heard the common admonition to never define a person by their body. But then I began to realize that if we're not men by our bodies, we are men by our actions. Do you stereotypically act masculine? Then you're a man. Do you behave in ways that are stereotypically feminine? You must be a woman. Ironically, queer theory actually reinforces rigid gender stereotypes. See, the transgender narrative says that it offers freedom, but in reality what it's doing is it's offering a very rigid understanding of gender stereotypes. Because if you're not a man based on your biology, then you're only a man based on a cultural expression of that stereotype. And so as Christians, we need to resist this. We need to resist being defined culturally, but rather being defined biblically. And the Bible gives us a whole lot more freedom than the culture does. And so I just want to encourage you, if someone starts talking to you about how they're not sure if they could identify with a certain gender, or they talk about being gender fluid, just draw them out about that. What, what do you mean by that? Why do you think that? They start to articulate, well, you know, various cultural expressions of gender. Friends, we have something better to offer them than a stereotypical box. We have the freedom that the Bible gives us of what God says it means to be a man and what God says to be a woman, which has nothing to do with these boxes that our culture tries to put us in. We need to think biblically. Number two, we need to show dignity. We need to show dignity. If we believe what the Bible says, that there are only either male or female, and both are equally made in the image of God, then regardless of how someone presents themselves, we should treat them with the full dignity afforded an image bearer of God. And so if we see someone living out a different gender, while our hearts should grieve over that sin, just like our hearts should grieve over any sin, especially our own, that should not change how we treat them. But they're still an image bearer of God. And so listen, we don't treat people based upon how they act or who they think they are. We treat people based upon who God says they are. So I'm going to get a few more amends on that point. I, I really pray, friends, that, that, that really anyone could come in off the street here. And no matter what they look like, how they act, what's going on in their lives, that they would come here and they would first feel this, that they are valuable because that's what God says about them. And so one of the ways I think that we can treat someone with dignity is by not throwing their sin in their face. So if I were to meet the artist... Ellen Page, who has transitioned to being called Elliot Page, I would call that person Elliot. A name is a preference. People can call themselves whatever they want. Many parents make up names for their children. I was actually hoping to convince Angie to name one of her kids Philadelphia Eagles. Um, I was like, hey, we call, you know, we call him Jake, call him whatever we want, but that would be his, like, you know, his legal name. That would be so cool. She obviously didn't buy it. Um, but I think part of how we treat people with dignity is by using their name. However, pronouns, him, his, she, her, those are gender statements. And I don't think it is dignifying to someone to affirm their misconception of themselves. If an anorexic person came up to me and said, I'm just so fat, and was looking for me to like agree with that, it would not be dignifying to agree with them about their misunderstanding of their body, no matter how strong they felt that that was their preference or understanding. So, so, so how I try to treat people with dignity, and this is just me, and maybe you disagree, and we, we can disagree with these things, but, but here's how I'm trying to, to, to sort this out. Here's how I think we should all have this category of treating people with dignity. I, I, try, to, I try to use people's names and stay away from pronouns. And it takes some work and thought for me to do that. Right? I want to use their name because that dignifies them. 
and the pronoun thing, I'm just not going to address that because there's other things we need to get to that are more important first. So we need to think biblically. We need to show dignity. Number three, we need to listen carefully. You listen carefully. A Christian podcaster who I listen to who speaks about matters of gender and sexuality a lot says if you meet one transgender person, then you've met one transgender person. Each person's story is unique. And if we want to engage with them, we have to be willing to hear from them, to listen to them. Ultimately, we will serve them by sharing the truth of Scripture with them. But we need to do that carefully. Because Hebrews 4 says that God's Word is like a two-edged sword. And so it's going to pierce us. And it can either pierce us like a surgeon's scalpel for our healing, or it can cut us like a knife and do harm if used unthoughtfully. I've had over a dozen surgeries or so for my Crohn's disease. And each time, the surgeon sits down with me, examines me, takes images of me, so that they can decide where's the best place and the best way to cut me. A good surgeon doesn't just go in with a knife like, all right, here goes nothing, boom, you know. No, they take time to know what's going on with each individual patient. It doesn't matter how many times they've done a particular surgery. Each surgery is unique to the patient. And so they have to understand me in order to know how to cut me. Friends, we need to understand people if, we know, if we're going to know how to speak God's truth to people. There was a girl who wanted to be a boy. She wore boyish clothes and cut her hair, flattened her chest, and was considering taking hormones. And this good doctor started to ask this person, why do you feel that way? Instead of just like, okay, you want the medicine? Sure. What they came to find out was that this young girl had witnessed her mother being beaten by her boyfriend. And so that had created this internal script of girls are weak. If I had been a boy, I would have been able to protect her. Her gender confusion came from a place of deep trauma. Man, that's crucial to understand before we just start dumping Bible verses on people. She needed to hear Scripture. And by God's grace, she did. And she experienced God's love in a way that helped her accept who God had made her to be as a female. But God's word was able to be applied carefully because she had Christian friends who listened to her carefully. How many questions do you ask people before you start speaking truth to people? We need to listen carefully. Number four, we need to weep sympathetically. We need to weep, we need to think biblically, show dignity. We need to listen carefully, we need to weep sympathetically. A study done here in America revealed that for people who experience gender dysphoria, 57% of them will have family members who will refuse to speak to them. 65% of them will experience some form of physical or sexual violence. 69% of them will experience homelessness at some point in their life. Friends, if we're taking time to listen to people carefully, we're most likely going to hear a story of some kind of pain. And Romans 12, 5 commands us what we're to do when we hear someone's pain. We are commanded by God to weep with those who weep. That passage doesn't say, weep if you believe a person has a right to be weeping. Person, passage doesn't say, weep unless that person is experiencing the hard consequences of their sin. Then it's on them and you just need to sit there silent. No, it just says, weep with those that weep. It gives no reason other than the fact that someone is crying and in pain. And so listen, someone might be experiencing hard things because of their sinful choices. But without condoning their sin, we should still have sympathy for their pain. Friends, Jesus wept for us. And there's no one who knows our sin like Jesus. And he certainly didn't stay silent about our sin. No, Jesus was pretty clear about the sinfulness of sin as you read the Gospels. But that did not stop him from feeling grief over what we experience as the result of living in a sin-filled world. Having tears for someone's pain, friends, that's part of being the presence of Christ in someone's life. Jesus wept. Are we going to be people who weep? 
We need to think biblically, show dignity, listen carefully, weep sympathetically. Number five, we need to love patiently. We looked at this a little bit last week, but Jesus' longest recorded conversation in the Gospels was with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Samaritans were considered people who had sold out and abandoned the Jewish faith. And this woman was a serial adulterer five times over. She had some sin going on in her life. But if you read that encounter, Jesus doesn't jump in right away trying to fix her. No, he patiently shows her that he loves her to the point that she starts to ask him some deep spiritual questions. I wonder how many conversations do we inadvertently shut down because we start speaking too soon before people know that we care about them as a person. No one's going to care what you have to say until they know you're someone who cares. Are we willing to patiently love people over time until they open their hearts to us? Or do we just jump in right away and try to fix what we see that's wrong? I read a powerful story about a transgender person named Leslie. She was born male, but then transitioned to female. Leslie met and fell in love with a woman named Sue, and they lived happily together for many years. Sue suffered from a physical condition where sometimes her hands would uncontrollably shake. One night, Sue went out for a smoke, and her hands started shaking, and instead of lighting her cigarette, she lit her sweater. Leslie came out hearing Sue's screams and saw Sue in folds and flames. Leslie wrapped her in a blanket to put out the flames and quickly took Sue to the hospital, but it was too late. Sue died. It is a traumatic thing to lose someone that you love. But there's a special kind of trauma when it happens right in front of your eyes. Leslie didn't know what to do. But Leslie knew that Sue needed to be honored, and so Leslie reached out to the first church in the Yellow Pages to see if they would host Sue's funeral. Leslie told their story and was very honest about who they were. It was an evangelical church that held a biblical view on manhood and womanhood. But when the pastor heard what Leslie had been through, when he took time to listen carefully, Here's how he responded. I'm so sorry. I can't imagine your sense of loss. We'd be honored to host a funeral for Sue. And please let us take care of every expense. We would be honored to. Pastor took time to love Leslie. The story goes on about how they built a relationship and eventually Leslie became a Christian as his pastor's love gave him the opportunity to share the gospel. Friends, we need to lead with love. We need to go first with loving people patiently and allowing God to work over time. We need to love patiently, but ultimately we need to realize that having love for someone doesn't mean that we don't share what is true. And so here's a final point this morning where we're going to be ending if we're loving people patiently, then we do need to pray for opportunities to share faithfully. We need to share faithfully. Friends, the hope for people who struggle with gender dysphoria is not just learning to accept their body. Their hope is the same hope we all have. Our hope is Jesus. Listen, someone could live with complete congruence between their biological and their psychological self. But if they don't know Jesus, they're just as lost. No one is going to heaven because they embrace their gender. We are saved from our sins and given eternal life because of Jesus Christ and Him alone. Sam Albury, who is one of my favorite writers on this topic, writes this, The problems we experience with our body are never ultimately going to be solved by our body. We may be able to mend some aspects of our bodily brokenness. We can cure some ills and heal some pains, but we cannot fix what has been broken. The only hope for us is the body of Jesus, broken fully and finally for us. And by looking to His broken body, we find true hope for our own. In Christ, our bodies are no longer identified by what we do with them or by what others have done to them, but by what Jesus has done for them.
Friends, this is our message that Jesus is a refuge. The world is offering all kinds of false comforts. Just express yourself sexually in whatever way you want. Just embrace whatever you feel is your gender identity. But like giving salt water to a dehydrated person, that only exacerbates these people's pain. And so we can respond to that in a variety of ways. We can turn a blind eye and not say anything. Just fly under the radar. Never talk about these things with our friends or neighbors or class workers, classmates or coworkers. But through our silence, we are becoming complicit in what God says is doing harm to their souls. Or the other response, one end is silence, the other response is to get angry and how godless our culture is becoming. And we need to try to fight some kind of culture war to make America a Christian nation again. Friends, neither of those responses are what Jesus is calling us to do. As Christians, we're not to be silent, nor are we to be some kind of cultural martyr. What Jesus calls us to do is to tell people who are weighed down with the thirst that sin creates. We tell them the words of Christ who says in John chapter 7 verse 37, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Friends, this is our message that in Jesus, thirsty people can be satisfied. He is the water of forgiveness, cleansing us from our sin and shame through His holy blood. He is the water of life, giving us meaning and purpose and joy as we follow Him in obedience. He is the water of love, for greater love has no one than this, than he who laid down his life for us. And so if we want to love people well, we have to be willing to have what might be an uncomfortable conversation and talk to them about how they can come to Jesus and drink. How they can come to Jesus because He is everything that they've been searching for in all these other places. He is the only fountain that can satisfy our thirsty souls. And so, Christ Church, let's not retreat from this controversial topic of gender. Let's believe that God has us here for such a time as this. And he, has a church, he wants us as a church to think biblically, to show dignity, to listen carefully, to weep sympathetically, to love patiently, and then as God gives opportunities, to share faithfully for the glory of Jesus Christ and the good of our neighbor. Let's pray.